So become doers of the word of God and not only listeners. We discussed at the last session that it is possible that after a year or two of studying the word of God, we may begin to lose some of our initial zeal. We begin to become more religious. And this is something that we must be quite concerned about, that our faith does not become reduced to a routine or a habit or a formula. We must stop every so often and reconsider take the pulse of our spiritual position, use some self-analysis, and let's learn to be hard on ourselves. Ask, am I on the right track? Am I on course? If not, let's correct our compass by a few degrees. Let's start correcting one thing at a time, one day at a time. Today, I will work on controlling my tongue. Tomorrow, I will control my tongue and add something else. I will control my tongue. I will not talk no matter what. I will control my temper for an entire week. I will eat less or drink less and so on. And if we do this, we will find one day that our spiritual bank has all kinds of assets. Little by little, we will amass a great spiritual net worth. Someday, we will have a number of virtues. If we do this on a daily basis, we will find out that it is almost effortless. We make it a subject of our daily prayer. Lord, help me. You know how I have a temper. You know how I am weak. You know how this thing bothers me. Please help me. We will become angry, but we will keep it inside. We will not show it. And this is important. According to St. John of the Ladder, it is the first step to eliminate the passion of a bad temper. Little by little, we will see that we will no longer get angry inside either. And we will attain true meekness. This is how we can begin to be doers of the Word of God. When we come to these talks, let's try to take one passion or one weakness which we have and make a fresh start between now and next Thursday. We will fight this or that passion. We will see how quickly we will begin to succeed. Our spiritual level will become higher and higher. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So the man that does not do what the word of God says is like the man who picked up a mirror and saw his face. He also realized that his face was not clean, had some filthy spots. 
He then placed the mirror down and walked away out of the room, but he also forgot about his stained face. We go to the church, we listen to a strong sermon, or we go to a Bible study, and for an hour or so, the ears and the conscience are bombarded by all kinds of messages, and we begin to see our faults. We begin to say, I must do something. I have this fault and that fault. I must change that bad habit. I must pray more and so on. I must start going to church more. The minute I walk out, the minute I get out of the room and the cold air hits me, I forget all about the faults. I forget the stains on my face. I jump in my car and go about my business. And the Lord said, how am I to compare the men who hears my words and applies them. He's like a house that's built on a rock. The winds came from the side of the house. The heavy rains fell on the roof. The rivers flowed through the foundations, but the house did not fall because this house was built on a rock. Not only the rock that's called Christ, but on the rock of the application of the Word of God. In other words, the true Christian, the truly spiritual person in the face of the strongest temptation does not fall. He stands firm. On the contrary, how am I to compare the man who hears, gets enthused, sheds some tears, but does not apply the words of God like a house that's built on sand. The winds, the rain, the rivers, they came and this house was leveled because it was built on sand. And why? Because there was only adrenaline, only enthusiasm, sentimentality, emotion. A fast heartbeat for as long as the sermon lasted. When the message was over, this person stepped out and all the emotions were gone. And with the first temptation, this person falls apart. And he's at fault because he did not push himself to apply the Word of God. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. St. James uses some very strong words in the Greek, which can be of great help to us. He talked about the fickle person who listens to the Word of God, and after he runs out into the world. He forgets all about God. But here we have the other side of the coin. We have a different person. We have him who not only listens, but looks intently. He seriously studies, searches the law. The Greek word is parakipsas, literally meaning 
I bend down and I search the subject very carefully. This same verb was used when St. John in his gospel ran ahead of Peter to look into the grave of Christ, into the tomb. He got there first, being younger and faster than Peter, but did not go in the tomb. He waited for Peter, and they both went in together. And then St. John Parakipsas, bending over, looked at the orthonia, or the strips of linen, lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. John 20, verse 5. John searched the tomb very intently. He studied the situation. He was in awe, maybe fearful. That's why he waited for, P for Peter. This is a great lesson for the man who wants to know the Word of God. We do not read the divine law like the morning newspaper. No, the Holy Bible is the book of study, the delight of the soul, the delight of the spirit, the book of spiritual guidance for the person who wants to understand, and understand he will, even if it takes running to commentaries or dictionaries, or spiritual fathers. Why is he searching? To accumulate knowledge? Yes and no. He wants to have knowledge, not to become famous, but he wants to use this knowledge to discover the will of God, to be able to live by it, and this is a beautiful person. This person wants to know the perfect law of freedom, and the perfect law is the law of the New Testament. The law of the Old Testament was incomplete in some areas. It was not the perfect law. It only foreshadowed the perfect law of the gospel. The gospel of Christ is perfect in everything. It is complete and final. And this means the entire New Testament. Unfortunately, many of our Christians will foolishly attempt to rectify, modernize, synchronize the gospel, changing it according to their sociological changes and needs. But how can you change something that's perfect and complete? We have religious leaders that proclaim that we must move forward. We cannot expect the generations of the 20th century to adapt to the same Christianity and traditions lingering on from the Dark Ages and Byzantium. My friends, let's be careful. This is sheer falsehood. If we have true faith in God, we have to know that the gospel was passed down perfect from the beginning and we must change to adapt to it, attempting to do the opposite. In other words, change the gospel to suit our passions 
would be committing spiritual suicide. No, we can neither add or subtract from the gospel. But many of our Christians in general look at the gospel of Christ as a gospel of oppression, a gospel of rules, a gospel that takes away a person's freedom. And those we know, people worship their freedom today. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of choice, freedom of any type of sex. And since the gospel may oppose some of these liberties, people rebel. We must realize that true freedom can only be found and given by the gospel of Jesus Christ because the truth is only in him. People today have a sick sense of freedom. The world's view of freedom is demonic. Leave me alone. Don't bother me. I want to do my own thing. Live my own life. I don't care if my way of life hurts you or offends you. It's my life and I do what I want. But this is not freedom. It is anarchy. It is chaos. This is the result of all the modern humanisms and secularisms. But how is the subject of freedom approached by the Word of God? Christ says, if the Son frees you, you will be truly free. Meaning, if the Son of God does not free you, you have no freedom. You are in bondage. No true freedom can be found in this world. Christ is the exclusive supplier of freedom. He is the prototype of true freedom. He came to be crucified by his own free will. He is the leader of freedom. But today, the world does not look to Christ for freedom. The role models today are greedy athletes, godless movie stars, dope addicts singing on stages, hypnotizing the youth along with vulgar females marketing sex in the form of sex appeal. And for all this, the wrath of God is at hand. We will all pay dearly in this adulterous and wicked generation. Christ is the only true source of freedom. He respects our freedom. He gave us free choice, free will to live our type of life. Christ's freedom binds us temporarily. What do we mean by this? Christ's gospel will restrict us temporarily to offer us long-term genuine freedom. For example, we discipline our children. We restrict their desires at times. Let's say they may want to play outside all day because the weather is gorgeous, or they may want to play with a friend, or do something fun, but we have some rules that restrict them. No, not today. You have a test or you have a lot of homework. You must finish your project. We do this so the child can become a free person after he succeeds in school and completes his profession. So we gain true freedom by growing up with some guidelines and by having some restrictions. And we must have some rules whether we like it or not. 
God from the beginning of time, the church from its beginning has been teaching abstinence, abstinence from premarital sex so the young people can enjoy this freedom in the duration of their marriage. This is a restriction and it is a disciplinary measure designed to protect and save the young person from the psychological trauma and nowadays the physical trauma of the sexual revolution. When God says, do not get drunk, you may say, why not? Am I not free to get drunk? Sure, you are free to get drunk. But God says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery or asotia in Greek. Asotia meaning the lifestyle of the prodigal son, loose living. But when God binds me not to get drunk, he preserves my freedom so I can think and move and be in charge. When I get drunk, I no longer walk as I want. I no longer drive where I want, but others walk me. And sometimes they can walk me on a white line and others drive me. And sometimes they can drive me straight to jail literally losing my freedom. When I am being pulled and dragged by all different types of passions such as flesh worship or self-gratification or gambling or smoking or drinking, am I free? This is why God binds us initially. He has some bounds to preserve our freedom. In our country roads, going over curves or hills, our road system uses barriers. And in the superhighway that's called life, God gives us our safety signs, warning signals, guardrails, and so on. But we are free to obey them or we can actually remove them. Our society has removed most of God's protective signs. We all see the results of this type of freedom. So the law of the gospel, the law of Christ is perfect and free. If you ask me, do people generally understand this? No, because they do not have the Holy Spirit. Do we want an indicator that will show us if we have the Holy Spirit? Naturally, there's a great, an infinite number of indicators and a great many steps in the possession of the Holy Spirit. But one indicator, in a small way, is if we understand some of these basic concepts of the Holy Scriptures. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? You cannot say that Jesus Christ is God without the Holy Spirit. St. Paul says that no one can confess that Christ is Lord without the Holy Spirit. People today in general are people without the Holy Spirit. The man of today is spiritually blind, has no vision beyond his carnal, 
hedonistic existence. If we begin to understand and see some of these truths of the gospel, such as the topic of freedom or the necessity of the cross, we are on our way to a life of the Holy Spirit. Again, there are many steps and many levels of the possession of the Holy Spirit. We find an extremely high level of the acquisition of the Holy Spirit in the dialogue of Saint Seraphim of Sarov with his disciple. The disciple asks, how do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? And at the same time, the face of Saint Seraphim shone like the sun. And the disciple asks, Father, your face, what happened to your face? It's like the sun. And the saint said, My son, if you did not have the Holy Spirit, you would not be able to see me like this. Your face is also shining. Of course, this is a very high level in the spiritual ascent. And to go from our level of the very first steps to the level of Saint Seraphim, well, it is a great journey. There are many intermediate steps, a multitude of steps, but even in our own spiritual journey, day by day, year by year, as we study, as we struggle, we will acquire more and more Holy Spirit. Some things that were strange to us yesterday are now very clear. Our understanding is greater. We have a spirit of sonship. We were adopted of sons at baptism, and we can call God Abba, Father. So we do have the Holy Spirit, but very little of it. We must increase constantly. Saint Cyril of Jerusalem says that the Holy Spirit is like the ocean. The amount of water you can take or carry out of the ocean depends on the size of the container you happen to have. So if your container is kind of small, then you will take out a small amount of water, meaning that if our container or if our faith is small, little, then we will have a small amount of Holy Spirit, so to speak. If our container is bigger, then we can have more. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to strive, becoming not only a mere listener, but a producer of works, he will be pleased in what he does. So it is not enough to produce a fruit only, but I must maintain the production. I must learn to maintain. When a farmer produces tomatoes, let's say, uh, he must learn to maintain the fruit until it gets to the market. So it can be sold before it rots. Or we must study the production cycle so we can have tomatoes all year round. 
So the maintaining of the fruit is equally important to a fruit as its production. Spiritually, you have the same thing. To have a person get started to respond to spirituality is great. To become enthused with the Word of God is important. But to maintain this level of interest, to maintain the zeal of the godly knowledge is ever, even more important. Many people get started and leave. Those that stay and develop roots are few. This is a very delicate matter, and we must take time to take our own personal inventory, our own situation, analyze ourselves. Am I going to continue to be with those few next year and the year after that? Or will I start to take spiritual vacations or time off from spirituality, backsliding and falling away from God? No, this is not acceptable. I must have stability. So this man who strives to maintain the study of the divine law, who does not let it go through the one ear and out the other, this person who applies the word and produces fruit, and this is the case of the true Christian, this person is a real joy to be around with, and these people sparkle and show much progress. This type of person will be blessed according to St. James. What does will be blessed mean? Blessed or happy in his striving to keep the law of God. He will have joy knowing that his conscience is clear. He has peace of mind, knowing that he has the Holy Spirit. He will feel very happy in this world. This does not mean that the man that abides in the law of God will have no problems. No, there will be difficulties and trials. One very bad misconception and delusion is to think, that once you become spiritual, people will no longer have problems or difficulties. This is a great delusion. Let's be careful. Coming to Christ does not guarantee absence of tears and pain and hardship. Does not guarantee automatic and a magical wonderland style of happiness. This is a delusion. The gospel of God is a gospel of the cross. However, the Christian does have happiness and joy in the midst of, of difficulties and afflictions because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Paraclitos. The presence of the Holy Spirit is what makes a man truly happy. Not only because inside he feels as a child of God, not only because he feels secure in this unfriendly universe, but because he sees through a different mindset. He sees things differently. Different eyes are given to him, and he sees things through the eyes of the Holy Spirit. 
the eyes of the Christian are different. He sees things differently, once again, differently than the ordinary person. When we see things with the eyes of the Holy Spirit, we will overlook our problems, our afflictions, and we will feel the happiness which also comes from the deep knowledge of what awaits us in the kingdom of God. All this godly knowledge makes the spiritual person blessed. The man who obeys the word of God is truly a blessed person. And now St. James brings up an example. He wants to elaborate a little bit farther and to help us understand how we should live our spiritual life. St. James' epistle is full of practical and helpful examples, not necessarily as theological as some of the epistles of St. Paul, even though there is much theology in this epistle, especially in the later chapters, but he attempts to clarify some spiritual matters for the Christians. He wants to give some practical guidance. And now on verse 26, he wants to address the possibility of someone thinking that all he has to do is listen to the Word of God only and keep some minimal external piety, a form of godliness, being always ready to defend his godliness with disagreeing or talking back. Well, let's listen to what St. James has to tell him. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. So if someone thinks that he's religious by listening to the Word of God, but does not control his tongue, then he deceives his heart. And his religion is as good as idolatry. The Greek word used by St. James is mateos. Let's discuss this word religious or thriskos in Greek. This word in the modern Greek has a derogatory meaning. People of the world will single out that person and say, so-and-so is too religious. I believe people of the world gossip in the same way when they describe someone who may be involved heavily in church activity. There's a certain degree of irony in this word religious and some of us may become upset or bothered when people talk about us saying, why is so-and-so becoming so religious? Or he's too religious. This concept of religiosity, as it has been called by some born-again groups, has a negative connotation, and it also had the same negative connotation in the days in the days of St. James. Not to say that the word could not have a positive meaning, but more often than not, it would assume its negative connotation by the actions of some Christians 
not living up to the gospel. But St. James here wants to talk about the external rules of the law. In other words, if someone thinks that by keeping some external rules of the law of God, but he does not control his tongue, St. James says this person is not a Christian. This should concern us greatly. This person does not have true religion. But let's check into some of these external or superficial signs that a person may have. And we may be surprised to see that some of these rules may seem to be internal or inward, but they are not. Or they may be both. Do you know what some of these signs may be? Some of these rules? The first is the rule of prayer. The second is almsgiving. And the third is fasting. These three can be internal and external. They can be actions that we can take. And they can be beautiful internal actions. Or they can end up being superficial. Is there a more internal subject other than prayer? The Lord said, close yourself in your room and pray privately. The Niptic Fathers consider prayer the ultimate of virtues. We have four theological virtues, faith, hope, love, and prayer. They are called theological because they pertain to our relationship with God. Hope is higher than faith, love higher than hope, but prayer is the highest. It's higher than all of the above, even love. Prayer covers all of the other virtues, and the man of clean heart has clean, pure prayer. The prayer of the heart, or noetic prayer, to have the entire being of the person given to incessant and continuous prayer, the entire heart, mind, and soul touches God. This type of prayer, of course, is very seldom achieved by Christians. Saint, Saint Isaac the Syrian uses a number of those that have this type of prayer, but the percentage is so low that we will avoid mentioning it here because I'm afraid we may become discouraged if we hear it. So we can see that prayer is an extremely internal matter and it can act in the depth of our heart. It shows the spiritual men and without it, we have no spirituality. However, prayer can become an external rule, an outward mechanical routine that a person can perform during worship, during liturgy, only to show off with it. 
If this were not the case, our Lord would not say at the Sermon of the Mount, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who pray in the synagogues and in the streets, kneeling and lifting up their hands to be seen by the people, and so on and so forth. So a person can run from church to church and consider himself religious and important by his activism. This is just that. Activism, activism without depth. Religious, but not necessarily spiritual. Another rule is the rule of giving alms, philanthropy. Is there anything more beautiful than the virtue of giving? It is the first child of love. But many times we give or donate only to be seen by people, to show off. We ask to have our name written in the newspaper or the church bulletin, and we constantly look for recognition. And the Lord corrects, reproves this type of almsgiving, which being a very private and spiritual matter, becomes something superficial and sinful. Be careful how you give alms, says the Lord. Do not do it in front of people to be seen by them. Be careful because from a highly spiritual deed, it becomes an external, meaningless motion. Third, the rule of fasting. People go to confession and instead of mentioning their sins, they begin to brag how they kept the fast. And they're ready to argue and scream at their family or their neighbors or anyone about the legalities of fasting and the necessities of fasting. They brag that they fasted from oil for seven days before taking Holy Communion. And the Lord again corrects this reaction. When you fast, do not become like the hypocrites, solid, and so on and so forth. Put oil on your head and do not try to stand out. So my friends, if we participate in these three actions of prayer, alms, and fasting, we may get the false impression that we have all it takes to be faithful and godly Christians. We master our religion. And this is what St. James wants to point out. If anyone considers himself religious by keeping the above rules, this is a start. But these rules are not sufficient. It does not mean that we should not fast or pray or give alms. On the contrary. But this is not enough. This is only the beginning. We must strive to become internally spiritual people. So if we pray and give alms and our name is in the church bulletin every week and we fast Wednesday and Friday, but our tongue is ready to criticize and condemn and work uncontrollably, let's be sure that we have no religion. 
We all gossip today. I hope we all realize this. But there's so much spiritual, I should say religious gossip. We entertain ourselves with religious gossip when we get together. We are not talking about the discussion that we may have with Christians to help a brother or a sister. And we feel bad about a problem in the church. This is not gossip. And when we speak out against a brother or a person in the church who may be teaching something false, when we do this, we are not condemning or criticizing. We are simply defending the truth. We gossip when we point out the weakness or the shortcomings and imperfections of other people, and we do this to show that we are better than them. We could have acted much better in that given situation. And, of course, this is pride. We are judging them in this respect. So St. James calls the religion of this person vain, or mateos. Mateos in the Greek Old Testament refers exclusively to idols and idolatry. And it is noteworthy that St. James uses this word mateos, saying that this religion has nothing to do with Christianity. Again, another great concern of our days. Is it possible to get to a point where we can have a worthless religion similar to that of idols? To get to a point where our religion becomes a dry, lifeless, legalistic action and we can become borderline idolaters even though we visit church every Sunday, we give our dues, we pay our dues, we light our candles? My friends, it seems that this can be the harsh reality of things. My friends, this is of utmost importance for all of us. For all of us, we must pay very close attention to this type of thing. The spiritual man has something different, a different air about him. He's not ready to attack or judge anyone. No one. He can say something, offer a suggestion, speak the truth, try to help or correct, but does not judge, does not take a position of superiority in discussion or the position of authority. That's what the Pharisee did in the gospel. I'm not like other people, Lord. I'm not like the tax collector over there, and so on. And now St. James wants to give a measure of what can be classified as true religion. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. 
Do you know what is considered as pure and faultless religion by God our Father? St. James shows us here two examples which represent the purity of our Christian belief. First, to be aware of widows and orphans in distress. Just like our Lord pointed out, I was hungry, I was poor, I was naked, I was sick, I was in jail. And do we remember this scriptures from the Sunday of Judgment? Someone might uh, think, how about dogma? How about the faith and all the other virtues? All that is necessary. But what are being mentioned here are some basic elements that represent our faith. And St. James uses the same method of mentioning some representative elements that show the overall health of our faith. Visit the widows and the orphans. Visit them in their affliction. He stresses the virtue of almsgiving on the one side, and on the other side, he stresses the necessity to stay pure and unpolluted from the world. The first side is quite simple, and we're not going to say too much. We must show compassion and support for the lowly and weak members of our society, because at times they suffer abuse from the rest of the society. We must stand by them and give them the necessary support which only shows that we are exercising the commandment of love. So look after the widows and orphans and keep from being polluted from the world. But what is the connection here between widows and orphans and possible pollution from the world. Do we realize that we sometimes can go out to help a widow who happens to be poor, down and out, depressed, and we can be greatly harmed spiritually? Having this type of godly deed turn into sin According to Father Athanasius and Panayoris Trambellas, this is possible. We have many of these cases, too many. People at times of affliction, at times of loss, loss of a loved one, become extremely vulnerable. And if we are not too careful, our desire to help them in a Christian sense can slowly change to an emotional involvement. We have examples for men and women. If you sense this type of danger, abandon your mission at once. This is exactly what St. John the Chrysostom stresses in one of his sermons about priesthood. And I quote, the priest, when he wants to visit a home to give alms, he must be extremely careful because a poor lady, weak, grief-stricken, in a state of constant sorrow, all these things create a certain sympathy, 
primarily from the goodness of almsgiving at first. However, later, this initial altruistic sympathy can change into a sympathy mixed with temptation, and the danger of emotional attachment is at hand. Needless to say, we must exercise great caution in these instances. One of our bishops here in America kept this advice of St. John the Chrysostom according to a close friend of his who told me that in his younger years as a priest, he kept this great rule when visiting homes. If there, if there were no husband present, he would purposely take some other person with him to do his ministry, but never alone. This is a great example for all our priests and lay people, young and old, especially nowadays. So in a specific sense, St. James is saying, be careful when you are visiting widows and orphans, do not jeopardize your purity in the process. But also in a broad sense, we could say that it is not enough to be a person of alms or a philanthropist but you must also be the type of person that guards himself against the worldly lifestyle and thinking. Who is a spiritual person or a pious person? He who does not walk as the world does. He does not live by the suggestions of the world and does not conform to worldly lifestyle to avoid peer pressure to keep from sticking out. The spiritual person lives by the gospel and follows its commands regardless of what or how the world may think. So let's not stay superficial Christians with some outward motions. Like St. Paul says, having a form of godliness, but rejecting his power thereof. St. Paul, when he's saying those things, we have to take into account that he is talking to Christians. In the last days, people will be lovers of money, lovers of the flesh. They will be disrespectful to their parents. They will be this, 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 this. He's talking about us, about the Christians of the last days. That's what he's talking about. And here, when he says, having a form of godliness but rejecting its power thereof, again, means that we take care to make a nice Christian impression. We cut our hair properly. We wear modest clothes. We appear pious. But in reality, this is not piety or spirituality. This is religiosity. And this is why religiosity is ridiculed by the people of the world. I'm afraid that people who ridicule our religion have seen plenty of inconsistencies in our lifestyle. If people would find true and real spirituality, 
I'm almost certain that ordinary people would appreciate it. They would not ridicule. They only do that because they do not find genuine godliness, but only a form of it. So in today's session, with which we finished chapter 1 of St. James, St. James, the brother of God, the Adelphotheos, St. James tells us to make certain that our faith does not become a conglomeration of external signs, superficial, dry, but our faith must develop depth. We must look intently into the perfect law of freedom, and that freedom comes from a serious attempt on our parts to eliminate our passions. We must cultivate our inner self and truly become vessels of the Holy Spirit. Let's not forget the teachings of Saint Seraphim of Sarov. The purpose of our life is the acquisition of the Holy Spirit. In the final analysis, nothing else will matter. The person that has the Holy Spirit has it all. With the grace of God, we just completed the commentary of the first chapter of the epistle of St. Iacobos, the brother of God, the other Fotheos. And now we will read the entire chapter to be able to remind some of these scriptures to ourselves and keep it fresh in our minds. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, 
because when he has stood the test, he will receive the victor's crown, the life God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts was pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world.